Welcome to the shit show of my 20s. My name's Sophia, and I am so glad you're here. I am a 20-something in my early 20s, and I was going through my fair share of shit show moments, and I'm sure there's more shit show moments to come. So much fun. But it's while I was going through these moments, I was realizing I'm probably not the only 20-something who feels this way. So I decided to start this podcast back in 2020, and it's been incredible. And I love interviewing these inspiring people. And I hope that through these stories, you're able to see yourself in these stories. And it would mean the absolute world to me if you would share it with a friend, as well as leave me a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. I put so much time and energy into this podcast and it would mean the world to me. So without further ado, let's get started. Today's guest is Ash. I love chatting with him. Ash is an accomplished entrepreneur, mentor, speaker, and author. Since his first accredited venture in 2014 at the age of 14 through MIT's exclusive incubator program, Ash has dramatically expanded his knowledge, network, and resources to found Ash Capital, a new age private equity firm, achieving consistently high returns by focusing on new age business models and empowering young entrepreneurs. In this episode, we go into so many incredible things from what inspired him to start his private equity firm, how to get into private equity, and how he's able to find investors, and so much more. So excited for you guys to hear this episode. Let's get started. So thank you so much, Ash, for joining me today. I'm really looking forward to getting to know you. I'd love to start. Tell me about your 20s so far. Feel free for you to include any shit show moments you might resonate with. Let's start there. Boy, so 20 has been definitely interesting for me. It started out, you know, I was in college, I was in a fraternity, having a great time, enjoying life. I was in a relationship, you know, had a good group of friends. And then around the year of my 21st birthday, everything kind of took a turn downwards, you know, my relationship ended. I ended up losing a lot of friends that I thought, you know, were some of my best friends. And I actually ended up leaving the fraternity because of all that. And then things just kind of took a downward spiral since then. For the rest of that year, basically, I was just, you know, on on a little bit of a downward track. I was was having a lot of fun. Don't get me wrong. It just wasn't doing good things. Um, You know, I was clubbing a lot, spending a lot of money doing that. Had a new group of friends, you know, who I still love. They're still amazing people, but just weren't like the type of people that, you know, I needed around me. But it also was a lot of time for self-reflection. And through that is kind of when I decided, you know, let me just hunker down and kind of do what I always wanted to do, which I've been, you know, interested in entrepreneurship since I was a kid. My family, you know, came to this country as immigrants when they were, you know, really young. My parents actually ended up eloping um, to come here because traditionally in, you know, in India, they would have arranged marriages, but they wanted a loved one. So they eloped and they came here. So it's a really sweet story. My dad came here on a scholarship for college he ended up working like three, four jobs um, daily to just support, you know, my mom and him. And then he got into entrepreneurship himself after he had worked a job for some time. And that was around the time that I was like, you know, 10, 12. Um, so I'd been going through that process kind of with him, you know, not really helping him, but just kind of like sitting and watching the, how the lifestyle was, what he was doing, how much he worked was the main thing that really stuck with me. Um, And then after that, you know, I got really into it. I started my first company when I was 14. I was invited into MIT's incubator program after that. And then two years later, I was invited into Stanford's program as well. Um, So entrepreneurship's kind of stuck with me for a while. But, you know, as soon as I came to college, I kind of 
got pulled into the wrong things, into the into just having fun and not really, you know, focusing on what I really cared about and what I wanted to focus on. So after all this stuff that went down, um, you know, my 21st year, I spent like three months just hunkered down building, you know, my private equity firm from the ground up all by myself. I, I don't even think I had much human contact for those three months. I was literally in my room, dedicated to it, not doing anything else. But I honestly wouldn't have changed a thing. You know, I went through a lot of depression and a lot of bad times. But because of that, I was able to build what I'm super proud of today. And yeah, you know, can't wouldn't change anything about it, even though it sucked. <laughs> yeah, sometimes we just have to lock ourselves in a room and start yeah. whatever project. Exactly. <laughs> just don't come out. But yeah, and there's so many things I want to go into there. I'm curious, like, had like the breakup not happened and had like the things that happened with your friends, do you think you would have still had the same motivation to start your private equity form? Or do you feel like you needed that catalyst in order to start? You know, I, I asked myself that question a lot at the times. I think that I would have done it anyways, just because that's kind of the path that I wanted for myself anyways. I, I had still been doing a couple of things when I was in college. I was in an IB track, so I was doing a lot of stuff with investing, the stock market, stuff like that. And, and I would have gotten there eventually, but I don't think I would have been as dedicated and as focused as I am in it now if it didn't happen. You know, it's definitely a possibility that it might not have happened at all. And I credit it a lot to the people I surround myself with. You know, the people who I had surrounded myself with at that time, you know, weren't pushing me to do more, weren't pushing me to be better. Um, and, you know, ha having that, you know, bridge, you know, caught on fire and burned, I was able to, you know, meet new people who, who were more in the like-minded sense that I was. And they, you know, constantly push me and constantly motivate me to do what I want to and help me out along the way too. So it, it could have happened. It could not have happened, but that definitely, I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be where I am. And it probably would take me another year or two to get there if it didn't. Yeah. Hmm. And I'm wondering, cause I'm always thinking about callus, right? Cause I feel like there's always like something that like creates emotion in us. And I'm wondering like, for like when we don't have a catalyst, like let's say everything's good. There's mm -hmm. nothing necessarily on fire. What do you think about like in that point? What's something you can do in that point in order to like create your own catalyst? Let's say if there's not necessarily a circumstance around you well, that's I'll already tell you creating that. Was told to me that I really you know resonated with, and it's you. Sh every single person should have a catalyst, regardless of what's going on in their lives, just from the sheer you know, fact that they should always be wanting, you know, more. And that's not to say that you should never be satisfied with what you have. You should be satisfied, but you should never, you know, stop trying to push yourself forward and trying new things and new experiences and stuff like that. So what I was told is, you know, you're doing good. You're in a good place. Things are better now. You're in a new relationship. You have a great amount of friends. You have a company, you know, what's going to keep you going, right? And it's, you know, and this is very harsh from the way he put it. But he basically said that, you know, you should be pissed that you're not doing more. Like you should be angry. You shouldn't be upset because that can lead you into depression and that can make you slow down. You should be pissed about the fact that you're not doing more when you could. Hmm. It's so interesting. Cause it, yeah. Because when you get to a certain point, it's like easy, like you're comfortable. You're comfortable with the situations right. around you. Like it's very easy to get into like that flow of like, but right. like this is okay, you know? Yeah. Comfort for me has always been like an enemy. You know, and I feel like a lot of people say this and a lot of people talk about it, but the second you become comfortable with something, you stop trying or you stop pushing yourself. 
and that's obviously not true for everyone, but you know, for me personally, if I'm comfortable, I have to change something. I have to shake something up. Otherwise I like, I can see myself going off track very easily or not pushing myself as hard as I know I have and can. And do you think you always had like that type of awareness to tell like, okay, like I've let myself be comfortable for like, let's say the last two months, like now Mm -hmm. it's time to change something. Do you feel like you always had that awareness or like, did you develop that over time? You know, I think I always had that kind of awareness. The problem was I would realize it and still not do anything about it. Like I would know I'm comfortable and I I would know I could do more, but I still wouldn't just because I was enjoying the comfort. But I think once, you know, my catalyst hit and and I went through this whole path and stuff, you know, now I'm hyper aware of it. So I think I always had it, but I think now I'm in a sense more in tune with it to be able to actually make the changes that I want to when I sense myself getting to that spot. Oh, and another thing I'm curious about too, is it seems like you kind of like really changed your life in a matter of like a year, like drastically. Yeah. It seems like. So like, what do you think contributed to that? Cause like, it's really nice to think like, oh, like I can dramatically like change my life in a year, but like, how do you actually? So I think it's different for everyone. Um, for me, it started with, you know, the, the breakup and the loss of friends, and as petty as it is, you know, my my starter was, you know, I want to get back at them or I want to show them that I'm better off or something like that. And, you know, that's kind of what made me just sit down and be like, I need to quickly do something to to prove to them, to prove to myself that I'm not going to be this, you know, broken person. So I, I think that's what it was for me. And then once, you know, time had obviously gone on, it started to be less about that and more about myself. And, you know, honestly, I compared a lot to the way that like, especially men go through breakups is when they go to the gym, you know, they want to have that rapid change immediately after the breakup and they, they want to go in and they'll, they'll dive in and they'll dedicate themselves to it. So that was like my dedication. Hmm. For like, for anyone who's like not aware, like, let's say like they'd never heard of private equity before. This is the first time hearing it. Like, how would you describe it? So and how'd you get into it as well? Well, I'll, I'll actually tell the story how I got into it because it describes it well along the way. So I, if you want to talk about shit show of your 20s, I started as a CS major my freshman year, and then I transferred into, you know, investment banking, and then I transferred into private equity, which is just different concentrations in the same field. But I really didn't have a clear idea of where I was going with things. I started in CS because that's, you know, what my, my dad's company is all about. And then I realized that, you know, I really enjoyed investing and stuff like that, which is actually another hobby that me and my dad did together. So, you know, he can still claim contributions towards that. But once I was in investment banking and I started working with people and interning, I kind of realized that, you know, I didn't have the same spark that I did when I was in entrepreneurship and building my own companies. And I met with an advisor and they had basically told me that, you know, you love these things and you love creating companies, have you ever heard about private equity? And I was like, yeah, I mean, I've had like a somewhat idea of what it was, but I I could never really dial it in. And basically how he explained it to me is private equity is when you have a fund. So you raise money from investors and then you take that money and you invest it in private businesses, which can be, you know, middle to late stage companies. And then you have the ability to go in and either, you know, let the company do what it wants or implement your strategies, your teams and stuff within those companies to help them scale and grow faster so that, you know, you get a better return and your investors get a better return. So the key point about private equity is it allows you to 
basically diversify into multiple different companies and actually go through like the experiences of what it's like building a company and scaling it and growing it every single time you invest in a new company. And I'm curious, like going back to the beginning when like you started your company, you started fundraising money. Like, did you have stuff come up from you of like, well, maybe I don't have that much experience doing this. Like, who am I to raise this much money? Like, how did that process kind of work for you at the beginning? Being my age in the space is not common at all. I think there's maybe a couple people that could probably claim that they're in that space at this level at this age. And it's scary a little bit, you know, holding, you know, millions of dollars of other people's money that you're responsible for. So it, it definitely there was a lot of concerns. And as somebody who's young, I've always looked to, you know, somebody who knows more than me when there's things that I don't know. So the first thing that I actually did was form a, a team of advisors and a board team of all well more experienced people in the industries who are either, you know, retired in different fields, or, you know, that are close, you know, connections that I've had from my entrepreneurship days to sit and advise me on all my on my decisions, my investments and what I do. And you know, that team has been, you know, vital to the success of Ash Capital. If I had to do it alone, you know, again, it's one of those things where I could have gotten there, it just would have taken a lot longer. But you know, the thing that I always see and this comes a lot with people my age, or you know, people in their 20s is you enter certain fields where you have to gain trust. And the only way to gain trust is with experience, but no one's willing to give you the experience without the trust. So you kind of fall into this vicious cycle of, I need to be able to prove myself. So I need an investor to give me money, but no investor will give me money because I haven't proven myself. So it's a very vicious cycle, but that team helped me combat that and beat that so that I was given the chance to prove myself, which is now turned into, you know, a, a large growth for the company. And did you have that idea right away of like, I'm going to get this board, I'm going to get these other people around me who already know what they're doing. So I'm able to leverage their experience. Or did you kind of like try to do it on your own at first? Or So I, the, the three months that I spent building the company, I did everything myself from scratch. I'm not traditionally the type of person who likes to let other people come in and do things. I like to have control and I know, like to know what's going on. Um, so in those three months, I, you know, find the company, figured out our goal and our reach. I designed and built the website for my CS background. I, you know, did a bunch of outreach. I had everything figured out. And then I went to somebody and I talked to them and they kind of explained that doing something yourself is great to learn a lot of things and to gain new skills and all that kind of stuff. And and it's sometimes great for founders who are, you know, have startups and stuff like that, that are either product or service based. But when you're in a field like private equity, people want teams and they want people and they want to know that there's not one person making the decision. There's like 50 people making the decision. That's what's going to give them the security to invest millions into you. So after I heard that, you know, I had to really come back and take a look back into the company and figure out, you know, how to build that team, how to find people I trusted. And then that's kind of how that all happened. Hmm. Well, like knowing all that, you know, now, would you go the same route of like building your own company or would you go a different route or what would you change differently about it all now? You know, the only thing that I would really change is the process of how I did it and not making the connections I did sooner. I'm not sure if that's exactly something that I have control over because they did happen over time. But if I could, I would have met those people who made those differences sooner. I definitely think I chose the right field and I went the right path for myself because I, the type of person who gets very bored very quickly, especially when it comes to like startups and stuff like that. 
So I like to build companies, you know, that's for me, that's the exciting phase is when you're building it, you have an idea, you get to bring it to life, you get to see people's initial reactions, you get to fundraise for it, you know, and then once the company's doing well, I kind of get bored and sidetracked because I feel like there's not any excitement left or there's not anything left for me to do, which isn't true. There always is. You can, there's always more you can do for your company. But for me, that's kind of the spot with my previous ventures that I would go and implement teams to just run it for me as I moved on to the next venture, which is kind of exactly what private equity is to me, at least. So definitely the right field for me. Yeah. And for someone who's listening, who's like, oh, like that sounds great. Like I'd love to get into private equity. What do you feel like is a good starting point for someone who like they really want to get into it, but they don't know like where they should start? It's a great question. (laughs) With a lot of things in the world and, and a lot of things with business, especially your connections, you know, your network are worth more than anything else. So if somebody is looking to get started in the field, you know, first of all, utilize your free resources, you know, use YouTube, use the internet. There's thousands of AIs. You can even go to like chat GPT nowadays and just type in how to get started with private equity and, you know, get so much information and so much resources. Don't pay to learn how to do it. You know, I think that with a lot of things where information is free, there's no need for you to pay for it. And there's a lot of people pushing courses, especially with new stuff nowadays for anything and everything that there is regarding business. So one is definitely don't pay for information that you can find online. Always do your due diligence, find the information. And then if you can't find it, you know, make a reasonable choice based on where you are in life. If you have that money to spend, you know, that's your choice to go do it. But the information's out there. And if you're going to spend money on anything, spend money on creating connections. So what I did is instead of spending money on all those courses and figuring out how to do it, I spent money on attending investor meetings or going to, you know, high wealthy, you know, places because my fund specifically brings in money from high net worth individuals and ultra high net worth individuals. So to be able to go and find people like that and talk to them in person, it's a lot way more easier than trying to contact them via email or LinkedIn or something um, where you never know that you can hear back. You know, for me, it's always about getting the person in front of you. So, you know, I spent my money on flying to meet people and going places where I can find these people and pitch in person. So if you're looking to get started, you know, utilize your information, spend the money the right way if you need to spend the money. And definitely don't do it alone and have a team. When you're messing with private equity, you're messing with a lot of government regulations and stuff like that. So you need to have you know, a legal team. If you're making investments, you need to have due diligence teams and you need to be able to have people there who can tell you when you're overlooking things or when you're, you know, trying to get into something too quickly and you need those people there to hold you back. Because, you know, if they're anything like me, they want to move as fast as possible. And this is just not a space where you can do that because one mistake can cost you, you know, everything. And going back to like meeting like these high net worth individuals, let's say maybe at the beginning, like when you're just like out of college, you know, maybe didn't have that much experience yet in the in the field. What did you do then in terms of like pitching, in terms of like getting confidence that you didn't like necessarily have that much because you didn't have the results yet? Like what did you do specifically in the beginning? I'm curious. Beginning, obviously, I didn't even bother with targeting ultra high net worth. I stick to high net worth, which I deemed as like 500,000 and above net worth. Okay. So at the beginning, when I was looking for those people, you know, fresh out of college, didn't really have anything solid. I had a lot of 
you know, I had a lot of previous investments that I'd personally done that had done really well. And that was my proof of concept, but I had nothing through the fund itself necessarily. So, you know, obviously the first thing that I did was, you know, put whatever I had made from previous ventures, previous work, whatever I had saved, I threw my own investment into the fund, right? And I used that money to, you know, garnish a, a couple of results that turned out really well. And that added to the fund's ability to perform. After that, once I had something that I could actually showcase, you know, that I did, the first thing that I did was, you know, go to family, friends, bring in their investments. You know, my fund currently has a minimum investment of $250,000, but you can't start there. So I would grab 5,000 from this person, 10,000 from this person, and just get, you know, anyone that I knew who had a little bit of extra money that they could throw into the fund to just kind of get those numbers up so that I could invest them into more meaningful projects that would show better results for when I was trying to go to people I didn't know and raise money. And so once I did that, the next step for me was to find the, pe- the, the high net worth individuals. And it's insanely hard at first to find these people, but once you kind of get the hang of it, you kind of realize there are way more high net in- individuals than you think there are in the world. So I started going to you know previous landlords of mine, new landlords, real estate investors, people who own small businesses in my local town, I even had gone to, you know, West Palm, Florida one time on a trip and I just went and stood outside this luxury hotel and anyone that showed up in a nice car, you know, if they were willing to talk to me, I would talk to them. I mean, you got to find them however you can find them. And and yeah, you got to embarrass yourself sometimes, you know, not everyone's going to be willing to talk to you, but if they are, you know, at the very least, it's a great experience to, you know, pitch, even if they don't invest, they'll most likely give you some tips and stuff. And it gets you a lot more comfortable with doing outreach, which is kind of one of the biggest things. I love that. You're like, if they have like a Lambo, they're over there. (laughs) (laughs) Come say hi, come pitch. The Ben Ben Autograph Collection Hotel in West Palm, and they valet all the exotic cars right up front. So you see them all pull up, you see them all pull in, you see them all get out. You know, when I did that, I was, it was later in the fund spot. So it was during a raise that we were doing for automotive technology and stuff like that, which we're still currently in right now. So I had a little bit of a leg up because I was able to pull some exotics out of my collection to valet next to there. So they'd be more willing to talk. <laughs> That's so cool. What I love of like an underlying theme of your story I'm noticing is like how resourceful you are. Mm-hmm. Like no matter what stage you were in your yeah. company and you continue to be, like you're so resourceful. I mean you kind of have to be yeah. when you're especially when you're younger, because you don't have the experience that a lot of these people want. So I always think that young entrepreneurs are obviously the future. Everyone says that, but I think that they have the most vision and the most resourcefulness, which to me, I can evenly play against experience. Yeah. Such a good point of focusing on what you do have. Okay. You don't have the experience, but what resourcefulness, what can you use that you currently have versus focusing on what's not there? Exactly. And and that comes into play a lot in private equity. Since you know, you have to have returns for your investors. I think if I remember correctly, the average return for private equity companies last year was about 10%. And because we don't just have it 
easy where we can just do those things. And because we're young, where we can, you know, we have a little bit more insight into more modern, you know, new age, either, either web three e-commerce, these types of companies, we're more willing to invest in younger entrepreneurs because of our own history. We've been able to maintain like an average of 15% ourselves for our investors, which is pretty impressive when you're competing with companies who have been in business for like 60 years. Yeah. Uh, and I'm curious, like with all the founders that you've probably like, like noticed like the trends of like what does work and what doesn't work in terms of like, you know, it's like what really makes a successful entrepreneur versus what companies maybe like end up falling apart. What's something you notice in terms of like a through line of all the successful entrepreneurs you've worked with? I have to say that it's probably, you know, I like investing in the person, not the product. I think that if the product doesn't work out, I at least have somebody in my network who I know has a good vision and it will do more in the future. So I don't judge a company solely on on the venture itself. And for the person and the people that I like to invest in, you can see, maybe it's a, maybe it's a learned skill, but I feel like you can see when somebody is passionate about what they're talking about, when they're passionate about their company, especially when it comes to like answering harder questions, especially when they're in the startup stage. You know, where do you see this company going? Where, what do you think is going to happen? What if this happens? What if this goes wrong? You can kind of tell very quickly who has thought about it inside and out, A to Z, figured out exactly what they would do if anything at all happened because the project is their baby and they want to protect it versus the people who just had an idea and created it. So, you know, you could have a million dollar, billion dollar idea, but if you don't care about it, it's not going to get to that point ever. But you can also take just a simple idea. And if you put enough passion and obviously a lot of hard work and thought into it, you can make that leagues above what another company who has a better idea, but just a worse vision has. I don't know why you you talking about that. That reminds me of Shark Tank. Like, I don't know if it's anything like Shark Tank, but what the um, process is. I mean, Shark Tank is in its essence, private equity. It's, you know, private investors investing in private companies that haven't, you know, IPO'd yet. So what they are doing is basically private equity. Yeah. So it, there's a lot of, you know, crossover between that. And, you know, honestly, if you, if you haven't watched Shark Tank, you probably should because they ask the right questions and they ask the questions that you'll get asked if you're pitching to anyone. And it's very interesting to see how people respond and the shark's responses, you know, to those responses. So it's a, it's a very good like learning thing. If you, if you don't know where to start or, or you don't have experience pitching to people, just sit down and just binge a couple of seasons. And I guarantee you, you'll, you'll definitely come out the other side, at least knowing how to answer one more question than you did before. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting watching it because I feel like more often than not, it's like the people behind it that really make the difference, right. like in like them investing or not, which goes back to your point of like the passion. And, and it's interesting because I've invested in some things too that I'm like, I don't know about that one, but okay. Mm -hmm. But yeah. Yeah. I mean, you'll see that a lot of times on that show. I mean, it is dramatized, so it's not like completely perfect. And every deal that happens on that show doesn't actually go through after the map. So it, you the, the points to take is I like watching Shark Tank, but I also like watching videos about the regrets that they've had on the show. So it, it's the videos, it's like compilations of 
projects that they didn't invest in, why they didn't invest and where they are now because of the founders and because of their dedication to it. So those are the type of videos that I think are even more helpful maybe than even just watching the show because you're going to hear no's and people aren't going to invest in you and people are going to railroad you with questions. But if, if you can take that, learn from it and move forward, then you'll end up with a better company, a better product or wh- whatever you're doing. You'll just end up have, having benefited from that experience in some way. What's something you think that maybe like some of the founders that you're working with didn't think about at the beginning or something like that's like a common thing to miss that you feel like they should consider at the beginning? You know, I feel that like with most ventures, there seems to be like almost a lack of commonality between things that are missed one venture or founder will have something that the other has not even thought of. And I've looked into a lot of companies to invest in who are competitors, you know, so I, I see from both sides what they're what they have and what they're forgetting. As far as like an underlying thing, I feel like a lot of people don't talk about the things that they should talk about because they're scared of scaring away investors. So when I'm working in, you know, companies that are in the automotive industry, let's say, obviously the market for the automotive industry is on the de- decline right now, right? It's not, it's not the highest. It, it's definitely lower than it was during the COVID era, but I'll hear pitches and people won't even reference the fact that it's a declining industry right now, right? And that's obviously something I'm going to question. And because they don't even think about referencing it, a lot of the times they don't even have answers for it. So they kind of get caught off guard there. But I almost think, and, and this is coming from me pitching to other people from my ventures and my fund as well, is if there's something that you can see as a negative thing for your company, for yourself, it's better to address it and control the narrative to the investor and, and make it seem positive, or at least that you're aware of it and have a plan to you know combat it than it is to get caught off guard or have to have them bring it up. Because if you let them bring it up, then they can word it however they want to. That could either not be a pre-prepared answer that you have, or it can make it seem a lot worse than what it actually is if you had explained it. Yeah, that's so interesting that you want to step away from something, but then it can end up, you know, going in your face because then they ask the question anyways, but you're not prepared. Thought process because yeah, if it's a negative thing, why would you want to talk about it? The investor is going to be like, oh, declining rate. Okay, I'm out, right? But if you control the narrative on it and you say, you know, yes, it's a declining industry, but you know, let's say you're working with exotic rental cars, right? That's your that's your firm. You you run an exotic rental car agency. And you're, you're pitching to investors and they say, you know, we're hitting a recession. It's a declining industry. You could have pre-prepared it to say, you know, we understand that the industry is declining. However, because of the fact that we are in the luxury space, you know, luxury spaces tend to be a bit more, you know, recession adverse than normal automotive industries would. So if I'm buying a Kia or renting a Honda or whatever, that could tef- definitely be affected by the recession. But these people who we're targeting to in the luxury industry, a recession isn't going to stop them from renting these exotic cars because they've prepared and they have, you know, either businesses themselves or, you know, it's it's kind of a market that money is flourishing even when the money for everyone else isn't. A potential, you know, recession in in the works. What do you think are good like companies to start right now versus like companies that maybe you should kind of stay away from? 
So I get asked that a lot and I look into it myself a lot because like I said, I'm still young. I don't have all the answers, but kind of what I've seen is there are industries and there are people that you can market to no matter where you are and no matter what state the market is in. If you're looking to get started now, I don't want you to be scared of the recession and holding off when you could be using this time to just build the at least ground floor for the company. And then when the time comes where the recession ends, you have years of experience, you have a solid foundation built, and then you can take it to the next level. You know, you should never let something like a recession delay you from starting something because, you know, you're not going to get investors necessarily day one. It takes time to build a company. It takes time to build the foundations. If I'm looking at companies to invest in during the recession, I'm looking at companies that you know, are in the luxury industry. I'm looking at logistical companies, companies that deal with transportation, that deal with financial lending, you know, stuff like that, where those things are also, you know, not going away because of the recession. As low as money is, we still need to transport people in vehicles. We still need to fund people. We Money still needs to be going around. And those are the type of companies that are going to stay up. It's, it's something called that, I believe it's called boring businesses. I remember somebody talking about it a while ago, but boring businesses are like, you know, you don't always have to reinvent the wheel. You don't always have to have the next best thing. Sometimes it's okay to just have a business that focuses on a need and is just better than what we had before. So those are the types of stuff that I think are not necessarily recession proof, but are at least more recession, you know, adverse than some of these new like web three companies that are coming up, you know, every single day now. Hmm, that makes sense. And that's funny, boring businesses. Sometimes yeah. we want like the flashy, you know, whatever thing I mean, versus I the I, boring. I watch some podcasts and I listen to some people talk at some conferences and they're talking about, you know, making millions from just handling like, you know, trucking companies or car transportation companies, like like very boring things but they've just found a way to make it more convenient for the users and the customers. And because of that, they've turned them into million dollar companies. Yeah. And going back to, I feel like a lot of your success could be correlated to your mindset and the way you see things and the way you see opportunities and the way you're able to like phrase things in terms of like mentally, like phrase in your mind as like, no, this is an opportunity. This is a drawback. I could do it this way. There's still opportunity for growth in this area. Have you always had that or has there been things you've done over time to like reprogram yourself to like, no, I'm going to think in this way? It's kind of half and half. I think I always had kind of a different mindset and a different kind of way of thinking about things than most people do. I just usually didn't care and would kind of go with the flow and listen to other people. But then once I kind of started getting into entrepreneurship and business, that's kind of when I started rewiring things to make sure that I listened to myself and knew that I wasn't just going to, for lack of better wording, just like fail. I think when you start out, when you're young, you have a lot of fear of failure and you don't want to do anything or put anything at risk that could lead you down that path. And as somebody who has come from, you know, multiple failures in the past, you know, you kind of have to go through those things. I mean, you don't have to, but it, it is beneficial to go through those things. So you don't make those mistakes further down the line when you finally settle on something you want to settle on. So when I started Ash Capital, I knew this is what I wanted to do. This was going to be, you know, my project, my company, my baby. But if I had started with Ash Capital when I was 14, 
I guarantee you it would not have been alive today. I had to go through those failures. I had to go through all those things to kind of rewire my brain to understand and learn from those experiences to get to this point. And I think the number one thing that I rewired my way about thinking was money because everyone wants to have, you know, an inflated bank account, right? You want to have money to go do things. You want to have money to enjoy your life, which is all totally understandable, but I remember that I used to get monthly texts from my dad that my bank account was negative because it was overdrawn while I had close to $2 million sitting in you know, an investment account or a company account because I didn't take salary at all. So I kind of had to learn to just take any money that I had and reinvest it back into the company to grow it and scale it in a way that I wanted to. And if that meant that I had to have negative $5 in my bank account every month, you know, that was okay with me because I knew that at some point I would be able to benefit from it. Hmm, that's funny because those are two extremes. Yeah, I think if you look at my bank account right now, it's probably at like a dollar. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. I feel like a lot with that, like, is also like delayed gratification of like, I'm okay with not taking this money right now, spending on whatever. I'm okay with leaving this for like going back into the business, not looking at it. Did you always have that skill? Or like for someone who maybe like they don't have that skill, like the minute like money goes into their account, like they're booking a trip. What do you recommend for people to start to develop that skill if they don't have it already? No, it's funny because I'm actually trying to get my, um, my girlfriend to think about things regarding money my way right now. And I put a lot of thought into it. But for me, you don't necessarily need to not live a lifestyle or a life that you want just because the money is not in your bank account. I think if you learn, and, and this is this is very important, I think for founders specifically, but if you learn proper utilization of credit and how to use credit cards and how to benefit from those, then you're going to understand that you can live a very, very good life with nothing in your bank account. So I think one of the, God, at this point, I think I have five or six credit cards. Each one has its own individual purpose. You know, I have a, a Delta uh, reserve card from American Express. And, you know, I put a lot of business expenses on that because it's a business card. And that card enables me to travel wherever I want to for free because I rack up so many points with all the business expenses that I do. So if I want to go anywhere, I just utilize those points. I have other cards that, you know, do cash back or give me points for hotels and, and other things. And just to the nature of the industry that I'm in, I get to benefit from a lot of the investments I make. So I had invested in some exotic car companies. I'd invested in some of these transport companies. So, you know, I'm able to drive and have flashy cars that I really like because I, I love exotic cars. Even though I don't have any money in my bank account, I still get to enjoy that type of life. And, you know, I think in the in the last year on those credit cards, I probably racked up over $100,000 in charges. And yet every single time I do that, I, I'm able to pay them off completely because I... I firmly believe that if you if you hold on to money and and you don't really reinvest it in yourself in your company and stuff like that, then you're going to be holding on to whatever you have for a very long time. Um, but if you take that money and you invest it and you reinvest it and you and you build a, yourself better, your company's better, whatever you choose to invest in, that money's just going to flow back because you're going to see the fruit of you know your work eventually. It's just a matter of how quickly you want to see it and how much you're willing to sacrifice in order to get to that point. Mm -hmm. I think anybody, 
talks about money in that kind of way. Sorry, the book called uh, Rich Dad, Poor Dad. I think everyone recommends that book. It, it's a great way of rewiring your brain to think about money. And going back to you said you and your girlfriend have like different beliefs on money. Like mm-hmm. I'm kind of curious to go deeper into that. Like what do you do if like you and your partner have like different beliefs on money? So me and my girlfriend come from two very, very different backgrounds. You know, obviously my family grew up very, very poor, but we did end up making it to a decent amount of success by the time that I was graduating high school. Whereas she's been, you know, working nonstop since she was 14, kind of for other people. So she had to learn to take care of herself and to save and earn and all that a lot earlier than and a lot better than I had to. So when it comes to money nowadays, you know, I see it as if I'm spending the money, it's going to be, it's going to work back and it's going to benefit me because, you know, like I said, it'll come back to me more. Whereas she is very scared to even spend a dollar of the money because she feels as if she spends it, it's going to be gone. And it's funny actually, because I think as Christmas gift last year, so not 2021 that would be 2021 Christmas our gift to each other was that we were going to start a company together and that company is actually thriving it's doing very well right now it does uh it does luxury led neon signs for businesses and and consumers it's called streetlight it's gone like crazy right now but I actually ended up letting her take complete control of that company because I think that's the best way that you learn how to utilize money is by just doing it, especially when you have a business. Like I said, it's very important for founders. And through that, I think she's starting to see that sometimes you have to spend money you don't have and sometimes you have to spend money you do have. But at the end of the day, if you don't spend anything, you're not going to make anything. And I think that's what she's starting to see. What a cool Christmas gift to give each other. It was one of our, we kind of made a commitment to ourselves early on when we started dating that we weren't going to do gifts a lot. We were just going to do experiences and, and collaborative efforts because I think we both have a very specific idea for what our future wants to be. And I think that we decided that the best gifts that we could give to ourselves was to help each other get there. And what's your biggest lesson from her? Oh God, there's so many. <laughs> I think I learned this from my dad and it's kind of habit I picked up on is when I start working, I don't stop. I have to, whatever I'm doing, I have to complete it. I have to finish it. I can't let go of things. And and that's not just with business. That's with like anything. I'm sure she has a lot of crazy stories. I think there was like one night that I spent all night tearing down and rebuilding a 3d printer because I just wanted to know how it worked. Just because I like, when I get something in my head, I just have to do something about it. And I have, you know, raging insomnia, so I can't sleep anyways. But I think when I started the company, I did it alone. I wasn't in the relationship when I started the company and I didn't have anyone who depended on me and I didn't have anyone to cater to or or to spend time with. But now that I do, I think she's really helping me, you know, separate those two lives and focus on, you know, also enjoying my life while I'm doing these things. So I'm not just, you know, running myself into the dirt. (laughs) It's good to have someone to stop you from destroying the printer at the yeah. end. <laughs> I think that's very, I think it's a very common thing that I see in, in relationships between entrepreneurs and, and founders and stuff is, is there always seems to be one person who wants to work way too much and the other person who can't stand them for wanting to do that. But it, it's, it's really good to have that balance in a relationship because you need somebody who is going to you know motivate you to work you know which i do for her and then you need somebody who motivates you to enjoy life which she does for me 
Yeah. Yeah, it wouldn't be good if it's like you guys are both the same because then you guys are probably like drive each other crazy, oh, like both working too much. If we both worked all the time, we would definitely drive ourselves crazy. And if we both enjoyed life, I don't think we'd get anywhere close to where we want to be. Yeah, definitely. And what's something you're learning right now? It could be any aspect of your life. See, normally I'd have a lot of answers for that. I picked up bodybuilding when I initially went through the breakup as well. And I've had a great path with that. You know, right now, it's unfortunate to say that I haven't had the most amount of time to be learning new things or learning new skills just because my fund's currently doing a raise for $20 million. That tends to take up all my time. I will say, you know, there's been a couple of things that I just love doing. I I wouldn't necessarily call them like, you know, something I'm dedicating to learning. But, you know, we when we started dating a couple months in, we got a adorable Keyshawn dog. So we've been learning to train him and handle him still. Obviously, now that my 3D printer is still running after I tore it apart, I do like to, um, you know, mess around with that a lot. I I think a lot of my, and it's so funny to say, but a lot of the the future that I see and the life that I, I see myself wanting, I see coming from my obsession with Iron Man in the past. Like I would watch those movies on repeat and I would just like, you know, idolize that that life of technology and work and and the level and the legacy that he basically took the company to in the movies. So whenever I can, I kind of just mess around with stuff regarding that. So I'm actually building an Iron Man suit. Oh, wow. In my tiny little apartment right now (laughs) that is going to, that has functionality. So it it doesn't, it's not going to do anything crazy like fly or anything, but it's going to look really, really good. It's going to be able to open and close and it's going to have some cool little features along the way. Um, so that's teaching me a lot about, you know, electronics, about welding and, and um, putting things together, which are skills that are completely new to me and are definitely a fire hazard to the apartment. So don't let the apartment unit see this. But yeah, I think that's one of the most fun things that I do whenever I have the time as far as learning skills go. That's fun. And that was not the answer I was expecting. That's the first time anyone's. I don't know what it is, but I feel like if if you like Iron Man, you're kind of obsessed with Iron Man. Like there's no in between. It's either one or the other. You don't like them or you're obsessed. And a lot of people don't get the fact that I'm obsessed. Um, But if you like walk into my apartment, there's just like a wall of Iron Man helmets that I've either built, bought, or like created from like different things. Just on display on like shelves in my office. That's funny. I'm like imagining like an apartment just full of Iron Man. That's pretty much what my <laughs> office looks like. Awesome. Um, what's something that's a non-negotiable for you every day? Something you do every day that's part of your routine? On most days, I would say the, the gym because I take, you know, health and fitness very, very seriously. It's, I don't go every single day. I don't see the need to. I go either five or five days a week usually. And that cuts it for what my routine is. And that just makes sure that, you know, I'm treating my body as well as I'm treating my mind, um, which is just equally as important as anything else. But for me, I think the biggest non-negotiable that I have in my daily routine is honestly just finding quality time to spend with my girlfriend and my dog. Cause I feel like I don't get a lot of that a lot of the time. So you know, I've started to create kind of non-work hours for myself so that I can kind of distance a little bit, you know, turn off, do not turn on, do not disturb, focus on nothing else except just that time. Cause it can get a little bit crazy. You know, I utilize social media for a lot of my business as well. I find that it's become so relevant that 
I'll actually have investors look me up on Instagram instead of LinkedIn now. And, you know, from that, I've been able to, you know, grow like an audience of 50,000 plus people who, you know, follow me in my journey with all this. And, and one of the main things that I like to do is I like to like give information, give insight for anyone that really wants it. So I'll, I'll sit and I'll answer DMs from like the most random people online about, you know, just trying to help them get either an answer, a question answered, a connection that they might want something. I'm very into helping like young entrepreneurs because I know the struggles of being one, but between like, you know, the business, social media, fitness, it doesn't really leave a lot of time for that quality time. So I think that's a non-negotiable for me is creating that time. And I have a final question for you. So if you were to go back in time and talk to your 20 year old self, what would you want to tell them? Or if you want to tell them nothing at all, that's an option as well. Back to my 20 year old self, I'd probably tell him to find the right people earlier on and not waste the time that I'd wasted because who you surround yourself is really a reflection of who you are and who you want to be. You can obviously still be that person, even if the people around you aren't, but it's definitely a lot easier and a lot more uplifting and motivating if you surround yourself with those right people. So I would probably tell my 20 year old self to stop worrying about what these people that at the end of the day, you never end up talking again to in a year from now, stop worrying about what they think and what they do and and just focus on yourself and what you want to do and find those right people. That's good advice. I loved interviewing you today. <laughs> uh, it was good being here. Awesome. And where can we find you? Where can we connect with you? You can connect with me on Instagram. It's at ash.m.candlewall. It's a bit hard to spell, so you might want to leave a caption for it. Or you can head to my website at ash-cap.com to learn kind of more about what we do, what we're investing in. And if you're an investor and you want to invest yourself, you're welcome to, you know, let us know and we'll get the proper information to you. But Instagram is where I do a lot of my communication. So if you're a founder, if you're a CEO, if you're a young kid trying to get into the industry, yeah, just hit me up. I answer pretty much 100% of my DMs. Awesome. Perfect. Thank you guys so much for listening. I'd love if you can leave me a review on iTunes. Please feel free to share it with any friends you think the story would resonate with. I hope you guys have a great rest of your day.